USA Today survey from some years ago asked the question, what do you think are your chances of getting into heaven? What do you think are your chances of getting into heaven? Great question, USA Today. Great question. I love it. And they reported a woman from Hammond, Indiana answered. I think we have this on the screen. She said, my chances are kind of slim, maybe 50-50. I have to be more of a nice person, but I'm still in the running. And you might know, this is just a very common worldview. This is the majority report, almost a bit humorous in the way she says it, uh, but her beliefs are not unusual. And to extrapolate a little bit on um, just my expectation of what she believes about heaven, people who answer like that think heaven is, is a place where earthly pleasures are just magnified and multiplied and, and unending, rather than the place where the creator and sustainer of the universe and the savior who died for sinners is enjoyed and worshipped for all of eternity. And then more explicitly from what she says, she actually has a very exaggerated view of her own sovereignty, her own control, a very small view of her own sin. She's not nice enough. She, she acknowledges that, but, but it's not such a problem that she can't overcome it. She just needs to be nicer, and she thinks this is something she has the ability to do. And if she was able to do it, she would make up for all of her failures. She's in control here. And how would this gal and others like her respond to the gospel of grace? The good news that we're not saved by good deeds or by being nice, not by racking up points for being nice to people, but saved as a gift alone through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ who paid the penalty for sin so that sinners could be forgiven and go to heaven purely on the merit of Jesus Christ and Christ alone. Logically, you would think, just logically, a person would love that. This gal from Hammond, Indiana, who thinks she has maybe a 50% chance of going to heaven, would just eat up the news that she could be assured of heaven and be able to go to heaven as a gift and not have to work so hard at being nice or risk the terrifying possibility that in the end she wasn't nice enough. I would propose that on her own, apart from the Spirit of God at work in her life, she would not love the gospel. God might use the proclamation of the gospel to create faith in her, but apart from that, she would remain a rebel to it. She would actually hate it. The gospel is great news, but it is hard news. It loses its appeal when it's brought to a heart with a sinful bent. Because to believe this news, to receive this gift, is to admit absolute need of the gift, absolute dependence on the giver. It's to surrender, to, it's to surrender control, or, or at least to recognize the absence of control. We like to maintain the illusion of control. I can be nice. I just have to be a little nicer. When am I going to get around to that? Not sure. But it's up to me. I can do it anytime I want. The gospel offers salvation, forgiveness, eternity, and the glorious presence of God worshiping him as a gift. You cannot get it any other way than as a gift. It is a gift only. If you are trying to earn it, you don't have it. 
if you ask someone if they're a Christian and they say something like, well, I'm trying to be, I'm sure trying to be, uh, honestly, if that's their answer, they're probably not a Christian. Being a Christian is not something you can be on your own effort. It's not something you achieve. It's something you are because you've been born again. You've been born of the Spirit, born not of human will, born of the Spirit of God. John 1.13, a true Christian is someone who is resting in what Christ has done for them on the cross, not in what they have done or might do or might try to do someday. Because you have passed from death to life or you have not. There is no in-between, John 5.24. I bring up this gal from Hammond, Indiana, because her situation and her sentiments and her disposition are shared by the character we're introduced to today in Acts 3. Two cripples, lame from birth, each powerless to find healing, neither even looking for it, each with a small view of God's sovereignty and a small view of the glory of heaven and a small view of their sin, each with a sinful bent that keeps them from seeing the glory of the gospel and their need for it. Acts 3, beginning in verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John go into the temple, he about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. This is the very word of God. And I don't know about you, but as I read the scriptures and I read a passage like this, there's questions that rise up in me, things that I wonder about. What what does this really mean? How does this apply? How does this connect with these other passages of Scripture? And, and for me, a couple of those questions I'll bring up to you now. Number one, why aren't miracles like this common today? Why aren't miracles like this common today? Doesn't your mind go there? You have some ailment or, or a loved one does, and you long for them to be healed, and you just wish that this was part of ordinary, everyday Christianity. What are we doing wrong? Why isn't this part of our experience? We'll answer that um, in the message this morning. Also, this the second question I had, what is faith and where does it come from for this healed cripple? I, I believe we're seeing a man get saved in this passage. He must have faith. So where is it, first of all? Uh, Luke doesn't mention it in these verses. It'll come up in verse 16. But where is faith? in this story, and what is faith? Faith is critical. Hebrews eleven six says, without faith it is impossible to please God. In Luke eight fifty, Jesus said to the synagogue ruler whose 
daughter had died. Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. So we see again and again in the scriptures how, how critical faith is. Well, here's this man lame from birth, utter de- utterly dependent on others for his well-being. He, he's not been taught any skill or, or trained for, for a meaningful task that, that we're aware of other than to beg. He has people in his life who will take him places, who will transport him to a place to beg, put him in a strategic place where he can beg. And at this point, he's not a believer. I think that's clear. From last week's passage, we have this description of the believing community, Acts 2.44. It says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. So all who believed were together and had all things in common. This guy is not with them, and he has need. He's on the outside. And as a cripple, he's unclean. He cannot go into the temple court to join the worshipers there. But I'm convinced he would have heard the gospel. He would have known the facts of the gospel. In, in Luke 24, after the crucifixion and the resurrection, and as a couple um, disciples are walking on the road to Emmaus, talking about Jesus and everything that has happened during Holy Week. And Jesus shows up with them, and he's talking with them. They don't recognize it's Jesus, and they, and they make it out that he has no knowledge of anything that has happened. In Luke 24, 18, Cleopas says, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? It was inconceivable that someone who had visited Jerusalem of late wouldn't know what had happened, wouldn't know the story of Jesus, wouldn't know about the crucifixion and the, the rumors of resurrection that were now being talked of. Now we're weeks or months out, and this guy is daily at the temple gate. The believer's passing by multiple times a day on the way to the temple to pray. So I expect he knows the story. He might even believe it to be factual, yet he remains unmoved by it. It's not glorious to him. It's not the greatest thing he's ever heard. There's something better. There's something more important to him, something more pressing. What he's focused on right now is alms. Alms are gifts of money or goods to the poor. We can relate to that. Got to eat. But is there something even greater than eating. There was a teenager who was depressed and discouraged, couldn't get out of her funk, so she went to talk to her pastor. Her pastor asked, asked her if she loved Jesus. Yes, she did, she said. And did she believe that Jesus died on the cross for all of her sins? Yes, she believed that. And was she living in surrender to whatever Jesus wanted her to do and to be? Yes, she believed in Jesus as her Savior and as her Lord. Well, then the pastor explained, not only have all of your sins been forgiven, past, present, and future, all of them paid for, never to be used against her again for all of eternity, but she now has the righteousness of Jesus Christ. 
She was as perfect in the sight of God as Jesus Christ. As loved and as accepted as Jesus Christ. She was a child of God, enjoying all of the rights and privileges of a daughter of the king now and forever. And the girl listened, and she took it all in, and then she just replied, okay, sure, but what good does that do me if I don't have a boyfriend? She had all the right answers. Intellectually, she agreed with all the right things. She, she knew the truth, but she was unmoved by the truth. Much like our beggar here in Acts 3, the, the gospel's fine, but there's something greater, something more pressing to live for. And, and honestly, churches are filled with people like this. They, they don't really love God or want to know God. They just want what God can do for them. So consequently, they don't really understand what the church is about. And this beggar has a low and a wrong expectation of the church. Th these are people who can give me money. That was his expectation. This is the crowd most likely to be moved to meet my physical needs. So he's, he's on the outside of the community. He's on the fringe because he's not committed to the community. He's there only to receive, to take from the community. And he has a fantastic excuse. He's been crippled all his life. Not many of us can top that, right? And, and even so, it's just an excuse. Romans 1.20 says we are without excuse. We are rebels. We are idolaters, blasphemers. We refuse to repent and believe all of our own doing. We suppress the truth of the gospel. We refuse to see the glory of it on our own, of ourselves. On our own, we just want God's stuff, and it's all on us. We have no excuse. Now, this beggar, he was not a cripple of his own doing. He's not responsible for that. It's something that happened to him. He's responsible for how he responds to what happened to him. He's responsible for the rebellious, sinful, self-centered way he has lived his life. And we're no different. Life has happened to us, some of it tragic and awful and, and not our faults. We're not responsible for it. But we are responsible for how we respond to it. We don't have an excuse to respond to life in bitterness and rebellion and self-absorption. Well, this happened to me, so now everyone owes me. God owes me. I'm just a victim. We read about the, a, a crippled beggar and our hearts go out, right? Rightfully so. so. We should have compassion for those who are in need. At the same time, we need to recognize what is his true need. Because his rejection of the gospel is an enormous offense to his creator and true of every person on the planet regardless of the hand we've been dealt. Jeremiah 2.13 says, For my people have committed two evils, the ESV calls it. Evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. See, to, to forsake God as the fountain of living water and try to find life elsewhere is evil. To prefer God's stuff to God himself is 
evil, much like a child who, who doesn't desire a relationship with the parent. They just want what the parent can do for them, what the parent can give for them. This is a great offense. Peter and John, verse 1, were going up. The, the tense of the Greek here indicates that they customarily went up to the temple to pray. There was a tradition of praying at stated times in the temple, which they kept. Verse 2, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. He was carried. He was utterly dependent on others. He was asking for alms. He wanted gifts of money or goods to help him get by. Verse 3, seeing Peter and John go about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. He, he sees them. He asked for alms. And I don't know if he's now holding out his hand as he looks down or away, but Peter, in verse 4, commands him to look at them. And I expect this man, he just has so much shame. He just sees himself as the lowest of the low, lives in humiliation. What can he do? Right? He, he knows people don't want to look him in the eye. He saves them the trouble by looking away. Maybe you've experienced this. Someone is panhandling, and it, it's, it's hard to even meet their gaze. Am I right? What is that about? It's almost like we don't want to acknowledge their existence or their, hum or their humanity. Verse 4, Peter directed his gaze at, at him as did John and said, Look at us. Look at us. It's no small thing. It shows this man that he is seen. It is a reminder to him that he is not forgotten, that he is not nobody, that, that Peter and John see him is a reminder that God sees him. Verse 5, and he fixes his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. Naturally, he thinks they're going to give him something. What else would this be about? He's there for alms. He expects them to give him alms. Verse 6, but Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And at this point, I wonder what's going through this guy's mind. Um, just asking for alms here. That's all I really wanted. And maybe his mind starts to turn, right? He starts to think about this. What if? All his life he's watched people walk and run and jump. He's dependent on people who could walk and run and jump. He, he could not. But now they're saying, rise up and walk. And there's that name again, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He's the one, they said, performed all those signs and wonders and then was crucified of all things, dead and buried. And now people are saying he was raised to life. People are talking about how they saw him after his resurrection. Witnesses are everywhere, hundreds and now thousands gathering to worship him. Could this all be true? The whole story reminds me of Jesus healing the paralytic in Mark 2 and also the other Gospels. But it's the guy who, brought, who was brought to Jesus by his four friends who lower him through the roof. And Jesus looks at this paralyzed man who's come down through the roof and says, Your sins are forgiven. And I would have liked to have seen the sideways glances of the friends as they're thinking, Okay, but about the medical condition here. Our friends still can't walk. Forgiveness, sure, but, but he can't walk. Probably they, too, 
had a small and mistaken idea of true need. They thought their greatest needs were physical, earthly, and temporary. They didn't see spiritual need. And did Jesus really have that kind of power? Anyone can say your sins are forgiven. How are we supposed to know if they really are? So then Jesus says, rise and pick up your bed and go home. And the man does. Notice, he healed the man so that his ability to forgive sins would be made known and believed. So that people could see Jesus has the power to make all things new, spiritually and physically. That's what miracles are. Miracles are not suspensions of the natural order. They are restoration of the way God wants the world to be. When a cripple is made to walk, or a blind person made to see, or a dead person raised to life, the natural order is being restored, not violated, but restored. When sins are forgiven, rebels are brought back and made sons and daughters as they were at the beginning and as they will be for eternity. This is a restoration. Miracles show that God is an enemy of suffering. And he's dealing with suffering. And one day it will be finally and forever dealt with. Miracles are signs that point to a greater reality. They point to the gospel. Now we read of miracles in the gospels and here in Acts. And, and we'd love to think that it's just normal Christianity. And if we are doing it right, we'd see these things regularly there'd be a temptation to think of miracles as something that is on demand, that, that we can bring to be on our own. A temptation to make the miraculous an end in itself. So why aren't miracles like this common today? Because miracles aren't the point. Miracles point to something greater. And, and so many people miss this, especially like prosperity gospel people, faith healers, word of faith movement. All of these heretical misrepresentations of the gospel make earthly blessing the ultimate good. And I think there's a temptation even in Christ-centered, gospel-centered, Bible-preaching churches to seek for the earthly and the temporary rather than the ultimate and the eternal. We have to fight against that. God sometimes heals miraculously. I believe he can. I believe he sometimes does. But it's not normal Christianity. It's not something that happens on demand. We see healing in the Gospels. We see it in Acts. But even then, it's unusual. Now, how many cripples did Peter and John walk past before they healed this one? How many people did Jesus not heal? We don't know. But they didn't heal all the time because miracles point, but they are not the point. Beyond, the, beyond acts into the epistles as the church is being established, I can think of any miraculous healings that are recorded there in the Bible. Miracles point, they are not the point. The paralytic in Mark 2 was healed, but then at some point he got sick and was not healed. And died. The same with the crippled beggar of Acts 3. He is no longer with us. They were healed, not as an end in itself, but as a pointer to something greater. So when you go to Mount Rushmore, you go to visit Mount Rushmore, and there's a sign that says Mount Rushmore, you don't get your picture taken with the sign, right? 
The sign is just a pointer. It points to a greater reality, but the sign itself is not the reality. With the paralytic, Jesus wanted people to know he had the authority to forgive sins, something God alone could do. And in Acts 3, the healing is a sign as well. God uses it as an occasion to point not just this man, but many to Jesus Christ, as we'll see in the following weeks as the story plays out in Acts. The paralytic in Mark 2 came for healing, and he got so much more. He not only walked away, he walked away with the forgiveness of sin, with eternal joy, with the hope of eternal life. Our cripple here in Acts 3 wasn't even asking to walk. He just wanted some coins. And I like the way the King James says it in verse 6. Then Peter said, silver and gold have I none. Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, I give thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Silver and gold have I none. Sorry, not sorry. You're asking for a Band-Aid. Forget about the coins. I have a cure. I have something greater. And, and we'll see not just greater, infinitely and eternally greater. Verse 7, and he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Peter lays hold of him, raises him up, and the muscles he's never used are suddenly able to hold his weight. Though he's never stood, he's able to balance. He's never walked, but suddenly he can not only walk, but jump. Verse 8, and leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Isaiah 35 speaks of when God will come to save. And he says in Isaiah 35, 6, 700 years before Christ came, Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. What God had promised way back in Isaiah is now coming to pass. Christ has come to save, and now his apostles are carrying out the ministry in his name, evidenced by this lame man who can now leap like a deer. Though he was not a true worshiper, now his tongue has been loosed to praise God. And notice this in verse 8. He was an outsider. He didn't belong with the believing community, not just because he was a cripple who couldn't enter the temple court, but also because he wasn't a believer. He wasn't a believer. Now he enters the temple with them, not dragged along, not begrudgingly, like maybe some of you here this morning, I don't know but walking and leaping and praising God, absolutely thrilled to be among the believers worshiping the one true God he has come to know. He started to stay on the outside, hoping for a little scratch with which to get by. And now he's filled with the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He didn't have saving faith. Now he's a true believer. He was unclean physically as a cripple, not permitted in the temple, which was a true picture of his spiritual condition, unclean, unfit for the presence of God. And his physical healing now depicts his spiritual condition. He's spiritually clean. He's forgiven and now fit for the presence of God by the righteousness of Christ credited to him now and for eternity. Well, when exactly did that happen? We know what happened. Luke, Luke doesn't mention the word faith in these verses. It will come up in verse 16. But this man came to faith. Personally, I would like a little more detail here. 
Much like Saul's conversion later in Acts, we'll get to that next year hopefully, there, there's no explicit report of repenting and believing. We just know this man wasn't a believer, and then he was. There are some truths about faith we observe here and elsewhere in the Scriptures, though, that I think will be helpful to consider. First of all, faith is not something you, you somehow conjure up. You don't drag it up on your own. Word of faith and prosperity gospel folks would have you believe that if you just have enough faith, you'll be healed. Well, here's a guy who wasn't even asking to be healed. And faith has nothing to do with magic words, right? There's no special words that express or invoke faith. The sinner's prayer, if you know what that is, may have been involved in your conversion. But, but saying the right words didn't save you. If you became a true believer, it was because of your heart's disposition of repentance and trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord. Your prayer and expression of that trust we don't have a record of this man praying anything here. It doesn't mean he didn't pray. It's just, I think, safe to say if he did, it wasn't decisive or even a necessary element of his conversion. And then notice faith has an object. Faith has an object. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Peter says, rise up and walk. Faith is trust in Jesus, in who God is, in who he promises to be and what he promises to do. Faith for, for faith's sake or, or faith in faith or, or you got to believe kind of platitudes are pointless. It's the object of the faith that makes all the difference. Peter points to Jesus Christ. That is where faith belongs. That is where glory belongs. Our words and our lives ought to do the same to glorify God, pointing others to his excellencies. See, the, the point of this story is not this man. The point of the story is God. So it's not just for the man. It's for the glory of God. Look at verses 9 and 10. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. All the people. The glory of Jesus is being made known. They were filled with wonder and amazement. Not so they can say, where's my miracle? What do I get? But so they can be ready to hear the gospel. We'll see this We'll see in this chapter and beyond now how Peter calls them to repentance and faith. And to complete the thought on faith, biblically saving faith includes repentance. It's a, a change of mind, a change of heart, change of direction, a turning from trusting in self to trusting in God. So this crippled beggar comes to this kind of faith. Right? Where did it come from? The Bible says faith is a gift, Ephesians 2.8, I read that earlier. Philippians 1.29 says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Believing in Jesus and suffering for him are granted. Repentance is granted in 2 Timothy 2.25. At some point, he received the gift. The light came on. He, he believed in Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Could it have been otherwise? Could it be something other than a gift? 
I propose if it's not a gift, God is robbed of glory. Th think of how this plays out. Guy comes home from the beautiful gate. His mom is there. She notices there's something different about him. Oh, you're walking, right? What happened to you? Well, mom, let me tell you. I was doing some careful study, interviewing witnesses, examining the scriptures, and I figured out Jesus was the Christ, and so I decided to trust in him. Or, or mom, I'm just trying to be the best version of myself, so found this guy Jesus, seems to be really moral, so I decided to follow him. Now, get a load of that. Or, or, or mom, I just decided I needed to humble myself, and I humbled myself, and Jesus came into my life. Can you believe how humble I am? I mean, look at me. Look how humble I am, right? I mean, if, if faith is not a gift, if it's something I conjure up somehow, then, then God gets some glory for my salvation, maybe most of it, maybe 99%, but does he get it all? If faith is not a gift, it's something I have done, conjured up on my own, doesn't there have to be something in me to account for why I believed the gospel and someone else who heard it rejected it. Don't I have to be smarter or more moral or more humble or something to account for why I believed and someone else didn't? Isn't there some glory in that? Isaiah 42.8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other. 1 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul said this, For who seeks anything different in who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If, you, if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? This crippled beggar received faith. He, he has no reason to boast. <laughs> the real story when he got home, Mom, I don't know. I don't know. All I wanted was a little something to get by. A, a good day would have been couple coins, and now I can walk and run and jump, and better still, my eyes were opened to see Jesus Christ for the all-satisfying treasure that he is, and my life will never be the same. I don't know. It just happened. And if you are a Christian, his story is your story. And the elements might look a little bit different. Maybe you did search the scriptures. Maybe you did interview people, talk to people. Maybe you did receive Christ and put your trust in him and repent and believe. Yes, that was God giving you faith. Whatever the story was, that was the Spirit of God at work in you. 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul says this, But by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Now, that almost sounds like boasting, doesn't it? I worked harder than any of them. Listen to Paul brag, except for the next part that says, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Right? We are responsible to repent and believe and to respond to God in faith. And whatever we do in moving toward God, whatever we have done is actually a gift of God. It's grace. And maybe that's not you. Maybe that's not your story. Maybe you can see that you don't love the gospel. Maybe your life isn't really committed to Jesus Christ. You, you identify more with our gal from Hammond, Indiana. Again, we'll put her up on the screen. Her, her chances are kind of slim, maybe 50-50.
I have to be more of a nice person. She says, but I'm still in the running. She is not in the running. No one is good. Paul quoting Psalm 14 and Romans 3.10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. As long as you are hoping in your own goodness, your own ability to be nice, you are not in the running. Her hope and your hope is not in how nice or good you can be. Your only hope is the undeserved mercy of God. Your only hope is the grace of God, the gift of God given to those who repent and believe the gospel. Trust in what Jesus did on the cross for sinners and commit your life to him. It's actually not optional. It's a commandment. Jesus said this in Mark 1.15, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. It's a commandment. To delay is to disobey. So my prayer this morning is as you have heard and considered God's word, the good news of the gospel, that he would be creating faith in you, that you would respond to the gospel. Don't leave this morning without responding to the gospel, without talking to someone who can help you through this. Josh will be here. I'll be here. Tim's here somewhere. Our life group leaders, find someone who looks like they might know what they're talking about. (laughs) Circle up. We'd love to have that conversation with you. We'd love to have you jump in on a life group this week, come around you and talk about these things. And then if you have committed your life to Christ, for all, all of the true believers here, I want you to consider this once more as we close with worship through song. I want you to think about that crippled beggar and the joy he had as he, for the very first time, his whole life never having stood or walked or ran, and now he can walk and run and leap for joy. His tongue has been loosed to sing the praises of God. Romans 3.11, one more time. No one seeks for God. No one seeks for God. And here you are worshiping him, enjoying him, knowing him as your greatest treasure. Can we do any other than leap and run and sing for joy, praising God? Let's pray. God, we give you all the glory. We give you all the praise for what you've done to bring us to yourself, for the work you've done in drawing us to you, for granting us faith that we might repent and believe, who might know you, for the all-satisfying treasure that you are. We give you praise for that. It all belongs to you. I pray that our tongues would be loosed to sing, that our feet would be loosed to leap for joy for what you've done for us. And for any who don't know you here, who have not committed their lives to you, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. They would receive your gift of salvation, the forgiveness of sins, and eternal life that begins even now. I ask that you would do that. In Jesus' name.